Good morning. My name is Mary Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. The date of my last drink is September the 2nd, 1977. And that, that truly is the grace of God in having this book beaten into me, and that's the only way I can explain it. Uh, I would like to introduce my dear friend, Jenny. Jenny has come all the way from Corpus with me. Will you stand up, Jenny? There is a reason that I do that. Uh, my home group is the Early Morning Fellowship of Men and Women, and it is a big book study. We meet on Monday mornings and Friday mornings at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, people who get up early are very serious about their sobriety, it was told to me, and I believe that with all my heart. Uh, it's been very interesting, and I would like to thank everybody that has been involved in this conference. I'm involved in our conference, and I know what it takes to put on something like this. And you all have done a magnificent job. Just a magnificent job. Give yourselves a hand. Also, I'd like to thank the tapers. I don't know how many of you have used uh, tapes as a as a as a uh, tool of sobriety, but you're going to hear in my story that tapes became very important to me. And I'd like to thank Chuck and Beth for doing what they do so honestly. Thank you. I'm going to stand up here, and I'm going to share in a not-so-general way. And uh, uh, the reason for that is that you're, you're looking at a woman. When I, I sobered up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, my sobriety was enhanced by people who were steel workers. And uh, you're going to hear my story. And, but when I first sobered up, I, 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 it was, it was a dull story. And I kept thinking, I need to embellish on my story. I, I need to make it have, give you a little more flair. And uh, I sobered up with a gentleman by the name of Nick Tudish. And Nick Tudish was a steel worker. And he would talk about how he had bellied up to the bar and how he had, the only thing he drank was shots and beers and how he'd spit on the floor. And I began to use that in my story also. And one day he said to me, doll, he said, you got a hell of a story of your own and you better start telling it. So what I'm here to do today is to let you know about me. My story is a very, very simple story. Um, The book is what you're going to hear. The book talks about, in one of the stories, it talks about a woman who is inwardly frightened and outwardly defiant. And that was me. Uh, why I bring, if people can come with me from my home group, is I have learned to talk Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've learned to talk it real well. If you want to know about my program, you talk to somebody who's in my home group. You talk to my husband. You talk to my kids. You talk to the lady at the checkout stand. You talk to the man that's driving down the freeway beside me. Then you'll know if I'm really walking as I talk. Um, I believe that my sobriety is contingent upon a daily reprieve. And I have a spiritual condition that I maintain on a daily basis. You know, there's a line in this book, and it says, alcoholics are undisciplined. And it doesn't say some, or a few, or many, or most of us. It says, alcoholics are undisciplined. And you're going to hear my story, because my story is a lot about discipline. Um, I also believe that this... This book, this magnificent book, 
And I couldn't wait until mine fell apart. I mean, I really, I just thought it was wonderful. I think this, I think this book is a, um, is a, there are a lot of what I call understatements in this book. (laughs) And one of the, one of the understatements in this book is uh, from a story in the back. And it's about the gentleman who retires and then he starts to drink. And down at the bottom it says, the need to uphold a facade had been irksome. (laughs) No shit (laughs) Irksome just does not describe My need to hold up that facade And you're going to hear a lot about that facade For any of you that have seen me this weekend You know I spend a lot of time on how I look on the outside I spend a lot of time on my hair and my makeup and my clothes And my sponsor points this out repeatedly And talks to me that I spend far too much time on it And she kind of has been prodding me and pushing me (laughs) And so about three or four years ago I began to incorporate the saying of the seven-step prayer With naming the defects of character that I thought that God and I were working on at that time. And I got that from the grapevine. The grapevine, there's a gentleman said that we needed to name the baby. And also, one of the things, the reason I didn't end up going to a treatment center was because I heard they took away your makeup. And I, (laughs) sure, I did not want that to happen. So you all are going to have to bear with me. I'm going to talk about this facade a little bit. So I'm I'm saying these prayers, and I say the third, here's my discipline. I get down on my knees. I come from the school of sobriety that you get down on your knees every morning. I have done that from the very beginning. I'm sober 21 years, and I have missed one night, and hopefully I'll remember to tell you about that night. In fact, I'm going to tell you about it right now. I was two years sober, and I was at a conference. It was called Cook's Forest, Pennsylvania, and that's where you stay out in cabins, and you have like 10 or 15 people in the room with you, and I had like 10 or 15 women staying in this cabin, and we drew straws for beds, and the bed that I got was out in the living room. And then people come to your cabin and they share coffee and we talk, you know, the way alcoholics do, way into the night. Well, one night I was tired and I was ready to go to bed and my bed was in the living room. And I was too embarrassed to get down on my knees. The feeling of letting God down. The feeling of letting Alcoholics Anonymous down and the feeling of letting this newfound person that I had found inside me down was devastating. I remember laying there in the bed thinking, God will understand. But since that day, because of those awful feelings, I have gotten down on my knees every morning and every evening. And I ask God for a sober day in the morning and I thank him at night if I have made it through that day and I have not taken a drink. The other thing that I do is I do a lot of reading. Uh, Sometimes I don't understand what I've read. Sometimes I forget by the time I pick up the next book what I've read. But what I know is that this this is working on this problem. And the problem it's the problem is not my my consumption of alcohol. The problem is my mind. The book is real specific. That's where our problem is centered. And it's taken me a long time. It was explained to me that alcoholism is, is, an, is a learned inadequacy to life. And see, I, I worked real hard to learn this. I had to learn this inadequacy. So it's going to take Alcoholics Anonymous more than 21 years to unlearn this stuff. So I do my reading, and then I say the third step prayer, and then I say the seventh step prayer. And then I incorporated saying the seventh step prayer with these character defects. You know, God, I'm now ready that you should 
have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me, I say it once the way the book says it. Then I say with uh, uh, self-pity and self-loathing. And then I talk about jealousy because jealousy, and it's not talked about much from this program, but the book says that jealousy is that most terrible of all human emotions. And this woman has had I, one of some of the first feelings I ever had were the fact that I was jealous, horribly jealous. And I was probably five years sober before the promise of that we will t- lose interest Self-seeking will slip away, and we will gain interest in our fellows. I was probably five years sober before I could be happy for somebody else that was having a birthday or that was getting up to to, to talk at a podium. Five years of working on this stuff. And then I, I, so I, then I talk about this jealousy and this coveting, and then I kind of lump it all together. And I say greed and gluttony and sloth. And pride, and at the assistance of my sponsor, I say vanity. And so I, you know, my motives are not pure. You are not going to hear someone who has these wonderful, pure motives. You're going to hear later on the reason I finally made amends to my husband was not this lofty motive that I wanted to be Miss AA or that the pain was so great. I was sponsoring a lot of women, and I knew one of these days one of them was going to ask me if I had made amends to him. So your motive, your motive does not have to be the purest to take the action that Alcoholics Anonymous demands. So I say all this in one morning, and this is where you gentlemen, and I don't even have to ask this, because your AA etiquette has been absolutely fantastic. God, it's just been wonderful to be here to see your etiquette. So you gentlemen are going to have to bear with me a little bit, but most of you women are going to understand about this story. Uh, I got up one morning, and I get out, and I walk, and I run, and I went out there, and I walked, and I ran, and I just felt wonderful, and came back in, took a shower, did all the things that, that we learn how to do, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, it was a it was a good hair day. That was the only way I can explain it. My makeup went on real easily, and my hair went on, and I had been watching for a dress to go on sale, and it finally went on sale, and I got this dress, and ladies, it was gorgeous. It was silk, and it was two pieces, and it was had a gorgeous skirt. It had an A-line skirt. Oh, God, it was just gorgeous. And Maybe you gentlemen can understand if you had watched a shotgun go on sale, or a hunting dog, or a fishing boat, or, or anything like that, but you finally got it. You know, you finally got it. So I got this dress, and I thought, I'm wearing that today, and and I looked in the mirror, and I looked in that mirror, and I thought, not too shabby, not too shabby. Even though I'm a grandmother, I can still probably turn a few heads. You know, all this ego, ego that is just welling up inside of me. And the thought went through my mind that, you know, you have just said a prayer about vanity, and you're standing there looking in the mirror, patting yourself on the back, and I promptly dismissed that. And I do that a lot. And that voice, that voice, that voice is the spirit within me. And I try now today to listen to that voice. But I dismissed the voice that morning. And I went on about my day. And I went to my meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was a grand and glorious meeting. It was a noon meeting. And it was just fantastic. And I came out and went to the bathroom and visited with my friends. You know, we have such wonderful connection with everybody. And we look each other in the eye. I just think that's, I'm still amazed by that. We look right almost through each other. And and we talked. And then I went about my day. And Alcoholics Anonymous has given me the freedom to leave my home, to to do the things that I, that I 
a normal person does. And I went in and out of two shopping malls, and and I went to the post office, and I think I went to the bank, and just wandering all over Corpus Christi, and just. All of a sudden, I began to sense that I was getting a um, an inordinate amount of attention, more so than usual. Like workmen were digging in the street, and they would stop digging and lean on their shovels and poke one another and point. And uh, I'd stand up a little straighter. I just and I remember thinking, you know what? I think I'll run a little further in the morning. This this running is really paying off, and uh, I'm just basking in all this. And uh, there's two little boys on bicycles, and they nearly wrecked. I mean, they wrecked. They stopped their bicycles, and they're whispering in each other's ear, and they're pointing at me, and I thought, those young men have excellent taste. (laughs) They will most likely marry women who keep themselves very well as they get older, and this is going on and on and on, and I go into a little small shop, and Ginny is there, and she says to me, Mary Ann, what is wrong with your skirt? And I said, what do you mean, what's wrong with my skirt? And what had happened is some four hours earlier, when I had gone to the bathroom, I had tucked the bottom of my skirt into the top of my pantyhose, and I had been mooning half of Corpus Christi. Luckily, it was made of silk, and they only got half of you about every other step. Uh, now, now I'm going to share in a not so general way what I was like, not what it was like. That's not what the book says. The book says what we were like, what happened, and what we are like today. You know, it was it. If I tell you about it, it was my husband, it was my kids, it was my neighbors. I'm talking about them. If I'm then, if I'm telling you what it was like today, it's my husband, it's my kids, it's my neighbors. That's not talking about me. So I'm going to share with you what I was like. You know, one of the things that Ginny and I prayed before we came down here, and one of the things that I prayed for is the fact that somehow or another, in this next time that we have together, I will be able to weasel my way into your heart. I never, I never, I wanted it, but I didn't know that I wanted it. I didn't know that I wanted to be part of anything. When uh, I was six years old, and it was Christmas time, and I had seen in a catalog about this hundred crayons, hundred of hundred crayons, and I still believed in Santa Claus, and I petitioned Santa Claus for these hundred crayons. I had to have these hundred crayons. I knew that that was going to be the perfect Christmas gift if I could have these hundred crayons. And I, you know, circled it in the toy count, in the, the catalog that came through, and I'd turn the pages down, and I'd take it to my mother, and I'd take it to my dad, and I'd talk to anybody. I took it to Santa Claus to show them that it was these, I didn't want them to make a mistake, that here's these hundred crayons, this is what I needed. And I badgered, and I pushed, and I talked, and I pleaded, and I begged for these hundred crayons. And on Christmas morning, the hundred crayons were there. And I remember looking at those hundred crayons, and the thought was just as clear as a bell. 
I should have asked for 200. (laughs) That feeling, uh, that is not enough. You are looking at a second-generation member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My father sobered up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and from the and my father died a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And from the very beginning, I identified with him. If a little bit is good, a lot is better. That was my motto. There was and there was never enough. Frank touched on this last night. The word enough never entered in my into my vocabulary. There was always that, and this is so classic. Something on the outside that's going to fix me on the inside. My father had uh, had had used up most of our money, and, and my mother was 40 when I was born, and my father was 45 when I was born, and he was that sick old man. Even though he was sober, he was sick. He'd had a stroke, and he was aged, and, and he was an invalid. And he ended up in a charity hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, and I was eight years old, and my mother said, I have to work. You're an only child. You're going to have to get on the bus. And she told me how to do this. She, I got, would get on a bus, and she'd tell me how to transfer, and then I would find this old charity hospital in Kansas City. And she told me how to wind my way through the, through the bottom of this hospital, through the bowels of this hospital, and find the charity ward where the 20 sick men were, and somehow or another try to make a connection with this old, sick, dying man. There was a problem with that in the fact that this hospital had no air conditioning, and there were bar- Bars on the windows on the bottom floor. And in wandering around through this hospital, I found that that's where they kept the crazy people. And at the age of eight or nine, I saw and I heard insanity. And it scared me to death. I not once went to my mother and said, don't make me do that. Not once did I tell her that I was frightened. I uh, found Mr. Wright at the age of 15. And at the age of 15, I'm lying on my back in a hospital, and they have just presented me with a baby, my baby. I had never held a baby before. And there were thoughts that went through my head, and the thoughts were, I'm going to be the best. I will be the best mother. Secondly, the thought I finally, in that little bit, alluded to the fact that I was afraid. And this is the thought that probably got me to you as soon as I I did find you all, because I'm going to ask nobody for help. No one. When my husband and I were married, we lived on the East Coast, and we went to a dinner. And it was a professional man's dinner, and we had just moved to the East Coast. And there were probably 200 people in here, probably as many as there are now. They were sitting at round tables, and there were several ways that you could win prizes. It was underneath your ta- your, your plate, or it was underneath your seat, or like our, we have raffles, they drew your name out of a hat. And as luck would have it, I not only won one prize, two prizes, Three prizes, I won four prizes. And it never crossed my mind to say, one is enough. One is enough. Give someone else the rest of those. One is enough. So I have given you a glimpse of this personality. I am so frightened. I'm such a loner. I am so selfish. I I have the I have the genes. Now I'm going to stand up here. A lot of people say you're not going to hear any opinions. You're going to hear a lot of opinions from me. But they are backed up with experience. My experience is that this disease is genetic. 
that I am not the same as normal people and that my father had this same abnormalcy. And that's what causes the physical part of the disease for me, that phenomenon of craving that I can't, that I can't have one without wanting another one. And that was very crucial to me. And it's important that you all hear people like me stand up here and talk also. That's why this mix of speakers that we have here have just been wonderful because we, we've, we've run the gamut. I was never in jail. I, I never wrecked a car. Uh, I never uh, lost a husband. You know, when we say that, it's like I've lost a, a penny or something. I, ne- you know, I never lost a husband. Never, never gave up custody of my children. You know, none of this ever happened to me. I was never around. I, I was never didn't have a speeding ticket. It should have all happened to me, but it didn't happen to me. I was protected. Women sometimes are protected to death. I, I know that, that, that men, the men here, I know this is a fellowship of men and women, and I know once we talk about the basic things that we are all the same, but women have an especially hard road to not only getting sober, but staying sober. You know, we will laugh at men's escapades, but we do not laugh when it's a drunken mother and there are children clamoring around their, their ankles. That is not a funny picture. There is no laughing matter. So I am, I'm just a housewife. I, uh, the first drink I took, um, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. Uh, you know, all the things that, that you hear from these podiums. And we say the same, we say the same things over and over again because it has to be, there's a rut in there. That's the only way I can explain it. And when I said this book was beaten into me, I mean that. The book was, when I first read Bill's story, I couldn't identify with it at all. None. There was no identification. And now I read his story and I identify at every line. So I'm married and we've got two kids and it looks like our life is just going in a, in a upward and grand and glorious manner and, um, you know, we've got houses and we're, we're moving around the country and it's, it just looks wonderful. And I'm crazy as a loon. Just crazy as a loon is the only way I can explain it. And so frightened and so locked into myself and so anxious. And we were in Kansas City, and the people we were playing, running around with at that time, said, we're going to pool our resources, and we're going to buy some liquor. And they bought tequila. And I took the shot, and I took the lemon, and I took the salt, and I was home free. You know, most al- most non-alcoholics cannot remember when they took their first drink. Most alcoholics can. And this was the answer to my problems. And it not only made me feel different, and this is very crucial for me to understand, it made you feel different. It softened this world. You know, you scratch the surface of of an alcoholic and you find an idealist. We cannot live in this imperfect world the way it is without some kind of a crutch. And that's why the first couple of years in Alcoholics Anonymous are so difficult. That's why we lose people right and left those first couple of days. Because the alcohol was insulation. The alcohol was the glue that held us together. And you take the glue away. And I remember when I first sobered up thinking, I'm standing out there stark, raving, naked. That the insulation had just been stripped. And I had not been around alcoholics long enough to pick up the tools. I didn't know what the tools were. So I, it changed it softened the world is the only way I can explain it. And my drinking career, I, I remember thinking <clears throat> when I first sobered up, there was a woman who said, I drank. I'm sober as long as I drank. And it was at a beginner's meeting. And I remember thinking, I will never get there. I will never get there. And I'm here to tell you now that I drank 
I'm sober longer than I drank. And that is crucial because it was crucial when I could get one full year. It was crucial that I could get through birthdays, Christmas, you know, anniversaries, all those things. I had lived through them all sober. So it was crucial now that I am sober longer than I drank. So I've got this secret that alcohol does for me what it does not do for other people. And and my drug of choice was alcohol, but I would do anything. That's the only way I can explain it. I loved amphetamines. And if you think I can talk fast now, you should have seen me on amphetamines. My husband said I had a mouth like a flap on a torn pocket in the breeze. It just kept going. <clears throat> when my when our kids were uh, during their teenage period, uh, you know, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous saying I'm a pure alcoholic. I never did any of this stuff. The longer I stayed sober, the more I realized what I had done. My son was into experimenting with drugs, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, the world's going to think I'm not a perfect mother. And so I, I searched his room like some stormtrooper. I mean, God, I had his bed pulled out, and you all would have been really proud of me. I found those drugs, and I got rid of those drugs. I took those drugs. I didn't have a clue what I was taking, but I took those drugs. Uh, I love diet pills, too. Those were wonderful things. I would wear a long coat and put soup cans in my pocket and go in and let the doctor weigh me. And he said, you know, you don't look like you weigh that much. And uh, the other thing that happened is I began to look down my nose at people who had gone further down than I had. And what I realized once sitting after I had been sober for about five years is that if that doctor had not given me those diet pills, I knew where they were in his office and I would have taken those diet pills. Stay around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough to let the fog lift. So I'm, I, my drinking looks social. For those of you who don't think they're social, it looks social. And as I said earlier, I would hear people stand up at the podium talk about, oh boy, when I took a drink, I got rip-roaring drunk. Well, I, that didn't happen to me. In the beginning, that didn't happen to me. What happened was, where I understood the phenomenon of craving was, every time I took a drink, I wanted another drink. I did not always take the other drink, but I wanted the other drink. And that was a big eye-opener for me. That was when I finally understood that I was, yes, a real alcoholic. And, um, you know, I did all kinds of things to make myself better. Uh, one of the things I did, primal screaming was very large in the 70s, and I decided that I would uh, jump on the primal screaming bandwagon. And what that is, is that if you learn how to scream long enough and loud enough, that supposedly it will, you know, rid you of all your tensions and anxiety. And so I would get rip-roaring drunk, and then I would go to the back door, and I would stand out at the back door and scream. Now, the problem is I had not told my neighbors I was into primal screaming, so I would constantly get phone calls, you know, are you all right? Uh, needless to say, when an ambulance pulled up into my driveway on September the 1st, 1977, my neighbors were not a bit surprised. I could go ahead and tell you a whole bunch of stories that I thought qualified me for Alcoholics Anonymous about how that I ended up drinking around the clock. Here's this brownie leader, this Sunday school teacher, this this uh, Cub Scout den mother, this political activist, this wife of an executive, all the stuff, the trappings on the outside, all of it. And yet, inside, I am dying. I am dying on the inside. And I had become a round-the-clock drinker. For I carried, him in my, I carried it in my purse. 
I carried it underneath the seat of my car. One of the one of the pictures that I have is my husband and I are coming back to, from Florida, and I am sitting in the middle seat of an airplane, and I have a fifth in my purse, and somehow or another, get this picture, I think I thought I drank from that bottle and nobody saw it. Um, <laughs> Delusional, delusional. But I would tell you all these goofy stories, and there was another story that we had bees in our yard, and and a yard man came, and he said, Mrs. White, you've got bees in your yard, and I'm going to burn them out, and I'm drunk, and I said, oh, don't do that. We have to find the perfect thing to do. You know how we as alcoholics have to find the perfect thing to do. My life is falling apart around me, and I have to find the perfect thing to do with these bees, and so I got on the telephone. You know how women get on the telephone, and I called uh, uh, Pittsburgh Press, and I asked for action line. I called a veterinarian and asked him about bees. I called uh, I called all the radio talk shows and asked about these bees. And I called the University of Pittsburgh and I asked them. I asked for the bee department. That I remember asking for the bee department. And I found out what the perfect thing to do with these bees. And Tony came the next day and he said, "Well, what am I going to do?" And I said, "Well, you're not going to burn the bees out." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Because I found out that they send out emissaries." And we get other bees. And with that, he stepped back. And he said, where do these other bees come from? And I said, Cleveland, Akron, you know. (laughs) Crazy stuff. My husband at this point thought I was going crazy. That's the only way I can explain it. And it never dawned on me not to have the morning drink. I found the morning drink early, early on. And I covered it up. And I called it lots of things. Brunch. You know, uh, vacation. That was a big one for me. And my husband would administer what seemed like a very passionate kiss when he came home from work. Well, it wasn't a passionate kiss. It was a sniff kiss. And I don't know how many of you have been the recipient of a sniff kiss. But it, well, I thought, I've got to somehow another foil this man so that I can still drink during the day and he won't know that I've been drinking. And so one day I was standing at the kitchen sink and what happened is I was eating peanut butter. And I thought, you know, this peanut butter has a wonderful fragrance. It kind of wafts through the room. But I didn't want to eat it because somehow or another that would ruin the the high that I was working on. So when my husband's car pulled into the driveway, I took peanut butter and stuffed it up both of my nostrils. (laughs) And when he administered his infamous sniff kiss, I darn near choked to death because I couldn't breathe. And I would go to beginners meetings in Pittsburgh, and I would tell people these stories, and they would just shake their head. You know, you keep coming back and read the book. That's not the insanity of the second step. That's bizarre behavior. That's not insanity. That's bizarre behavior. The insanity is that I was getting into trouble, and I was getting into deep, deep trouble. That's the only way I can explain it. Deep trouble. I was in deep depression and I loved to lay on the bed after my husband was on a business trip and the kids were off to school and I would lay there and listen to uh, uh, records. Remember we records? We talked about that earlier. Uh, I would listen to records and my favorite one is Peggy Lee. Is that all there is? Oh, oh, oh. For you young people, you have to get that record. I mean, I could sing it for you right now. It was just magnificent. When I sobered up, my sponsor said, Marianne, we call that wrist-cutting music. We don't listen to that. Now. It's, my, my alcoholism is getting worse. I started from having a social drink before dinner to drinking around the clock. Women, it's been my experience that this, it's like out of a roller coaster. It just kind of chugs, chugs, chugs up until it hits the top, and then it starts down. 
And what happened to me is what is talks about in the 12 and 12. In step one, the rapacious creditor had come to collect. And I was bankrupt. I was void. Absolutely empty. One night, my husband was gone, and my kids were gone, and I got up, and I went to the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and I saw myself as I really was, and uh, Clara talked yesterday about her red bangs while I had natural long bangs, and I covered my eyes because I didn't want anybody to look in my eyes. My mother had told me early on that the eyes were the window to the soul, and I was terrified that if you looked in my eyes, you would see there was nothing there, that there was no one home, that there was no character, that there was no substance that there was not a person of worth in there. And so I worked real hard on keeping you away. And I had those long bangs, and I was 30 pounds heavier than I was. And I was drunk, and I looked in the mirror, and I got the window. It was fleeting. Ten seconds. And I saw myself as I really was. It wasn't his fault. It wasn't my kid's fault. It was me. And I uttered what I believe is the true prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, you all know what I said, God, help me. No, it was the best prayer I've ever said. And the reason why is that there were no strings attached to this prayer. I didn't have a clue what was going to happen as a result of this prayer. But I knew that I could not go on any longer living like this. What I know today is that that's that special part inside of us. It's referred to by some speakers as that little piece of white velvet that God will not allow to be soiled. And when it gets too close to soiling that little piece of white velvet, God steps in. I was arrogant enough to stand at podiums and say, well, it was that prayer that got me into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't have a clue which prayer God finally heard. Was it the one of my husband or my kids or at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon where they pray for the alcoholic who is still sick and suffering? I don't know. I don't know. But what happened is my miracle began to unfold, and it unfolded in a very strange way. My daughter was up there, and and because I was going to have to go into the hospital anyway. I was getting ready face surgery, and I'm coming in and out of blackouts, which is just that horrible stuff. And I came out of a blackout, and my daughter's sitting on the edge of the bed, and she said, what is the matter? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And then I, you know, it was like, who said that? <laughs> I said it. And the process began to be kicked into motion is the only way I can explain it. I ended up in St. Francis Hospital. I had to go via ambulance. And St. Francis is an old, old city hospital. And when I sobered up, they mixed the crazy people and the alcoholics. But I knew who was an alcoholic. It was weird. I knew who was crazy, and I knew who was an alcoholic. And it's very much like a friend of mine in the state of Texas who takes a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous into a facility like that where they have got crazy people and alcoholics. And he goes up to the nurse, and he said, I want you to call out the alcoholics and put them over there. I'm going to have an AA meeting. And this nurse is just magnificent. She never refers to a chart or a graph, or she never she never queries them or asks them any questions. She pushes this man and nudges this woman, and he is just amazed that she can do that. And finally, he had been there about five weeks, and he said to her, how, how do you know who's an alcoholic, and how do you know who's crazy? 
And she said, it's very, very simple. She said, the alcohol, she said, the crazy people sit there very quietly. And she said, the alcoholics are always up at the desk telling us how to run this place. <laughs> and I knew that I had come home. And I went to hear my first lead. They called them, they call them leads in Pittsburgh. And I went to hear my first lead and a man standing up there telling his story like I'm telling my story and he had stabbed his wife. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in with drug addicts and murderers. And I said to the lady next to me, I'm gonna, I'm going, I'm going. And she said, where are you going? And I said, I'm gonna faint. And I fainted at my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. But like Frank said last night, Hope was born. I didn't know that's what that was. I didn't have any idea that it was hope. And I didn't know anything about this book. And I didn't know anything about the steps. And I didn't know anything about ego deflation at depth. And I had no idea that it was going to have to happen to me. I came home after surgery and I got a phone call from a woman. And she said, do you want to talk to somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, yes. And she came to my house, she was a a neighbor, and she said, I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and do you want to talk? And I said, yes. I'll tell you what I did. I took my eyes up off the floor, and I began to check her out. And I don't mean clothes-wise, and I don't mean hair-wise. What I did was I started at her bottom, and I, of her shoes, and I got to her eyes. And I looked in her eyes. And there was someone home. She was not euphorically happy, but because she had had a hard sobriety. But she was content in her own skin. And by God, I wanted that. I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. She took me, and I fell in love with AA. Just fell in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, get a sponsor. I I got a sponsor, and I got a home group. And I would like to tell you, as the rest of the speakers said, that I just tiptoed through the tulips. Just went through and have had no problems since then, but that's not telling you what I'm like, because if you are an alcoholic of my kind and you take the alcohol away, you are in big trouble, and there better be something to replace that, and I had not grasped the fellowship or the working of the steps. That's what the program is, is the working of the steps. I saw them on the wall, and I thought, not for me. I have a slight case of alcoholism. You all have a serious case. You see, I took the vaccine. You know how when you take the flu vaccine, you have a little fever and your arm's a little sore? Well, I had to go to detox, and and I came to AA. That's all that has to happen. And for 17 months, I was into activity. Into activity. I went to conferences. I I did make coffee. I did all those things. And I took cookies. And I was involved in planning dinners and spreading the disease, you know, not having any idea about recovery. Listen, I have long hair, and I had long hair then, only it was flowing. And I would go in and out of bars on the north side of Pittsburgh saying, my name is Mary Ann, and I'm an alcoholic. I have a cure. Please come follow me. <laughs> They never followed me. I don't understand why. So I am just tiptoeing through the tulips. I mean, just having a grand and glorious time getting sober. Much like the book talks about, gee, Ma, ain't it great the wind stopped blowing. And at 17 months, my husband called me into the kitchen, and he said to me, Mary Ann, it's not that I don't love you. It's just I can't live with you anymore. And here it is. Here it is. Whatever it is in your life that precipitates this feeling, it is a blessing. 
But what went through my mind was, I will be forced to drink. I Here it is. I have a tragedy in my life. I have something horrible that's happening in my life. I, I have told you how frightened I am and that I think there's nobody home, and I'm not going to let you know that there's nobody home, and there's no person of character in here, so I probably will be forced to drink. And so I went to my meeting that night because it was a Tuesday night, and I come from the School of Sobriety that if it's your home group night, you better be there. And I went, got all dressed up, went to my home group, and they said, how are you? And you know what I said? I'm fine. I'm fine. They said, you look nice. I said, you like my outfit? And later on in the kitchen, I collapsed in their arms. And I said, I can't do this anymore by myself. Will you please help me? The role of Old Timers and Alcoholics Anonymous, it has been my experience, is we stand outside and we knock. We knock. All we do is knock. And we call in there, you know, is anybody there? But the door has got to be opened from the inside. And I opened the door that night. And my sobriety at that point took off. Because I began to see that, yes, I was an alcoholic. I was a real alcoholic. And it had nothing to do with my consumption of alcohol. It had to do with my thinking. And it had to do with my inability to deal with life on life's terms. It had to do with my keeping secrets. Secrets that would, wouldn't, that were just stupid to keep. I would not, part of my recovery was this. I would not, I, I compartmentalized my life. Here's my sobriety. Here's my sex life, here's my marriage, here's my money, here are my kids, here are these character defects, and it was like the twain would never meet. It was not They were not going to touch each other. And what happened is I would have a problem, and I would somehow or another solve it on my own. And then I would come to Alcoholics Anonymous and tell them how I had solved it on my own. The progress, and this is great progress. Listen to me carefully. The great progress was I began to talk about the problem before I had solved it. That was a big gold star for Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know the outcome. See, I wouldn't talk about anything unless I knew the outcome. I also was the kind of person that if I didn't tell you that it happened, it hadn't happened. It didn't happen. So I began to do follow the directions in the book. And I did a third step exactly like the book talks about on my knees. And then I did a fourth step, as the book says. But I had to use the 12 and 12. The 12 and 12 was the key where it says, when and how did my selfish pursuit of sex injure myself or others? That's how I started it. I did my fifth step with a priest. You know why? My sponsor did her fifth step with a priest, and I wanted what she had. I remember thinking when I got to the monastery to see Father Ben that I was afraid. I wasn't afraid. I was anxious. I was almost excited because for the first time in my life, my timing, I was exactly where I was supposed to be, doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And I went into Father Ben, and and he 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 talked to me, and and he he said, "Have have you spoken from the podium? And I said, yes. And then we started. And then what happened to me is what I had been afraid was going to happen. Tears. They were tears that should have been shed a long, long time ago. My sins were commission, yeah, but a lot of my sins were omission. Things that I should have done. 
God has given me great gifts and great talents, and I abuse those and I misuse those. You know, I'm one of those mothers that had washed their clothes and had cooked their food and had made their bed and had been their brownie leader and their scout leader. And what I discovered in my fourth step was that I uh, I had withheld love and that I had used love as a weapon. And the other thing that I had done is I had refused to promote the good. There was a gentleman that I sobered up with. He talked about the world truly is a better. Sterling talked about those seven people that we're supposed to affect. The world truly is a better place now that we don't drink. Truly is a better place now that we don't drink. Um, <clears throat> I did the fifth step. One of the things that Father Ben said to me was this. He said, Marianne, he said, now your role is to be, is to realize that God has forgiven you. And he said, your role now is to forgive yourself. See, if I say that I'm worse than anybody else or, or my sins have to be worse or my sins of omission are worse, I'm placing myself higher than God. If these people that are religious and loving and kind and have prayed for us for years tell me that I'm forgiven, then I'm forgiven. Uh, my husband and I were separated and we're going through this uh, extreme battle of, um, the, you know, division of money, property, and prestige. And uh, I was, uh, I, I led a sober life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And let me tell you the tool that AA gave me that was absolutely magnificent. My life on paper looked awful. I mean, I had this little teeny tiny job. I'm selling children's clothes and children's toys. And I'm driving this old car and I'm making minimum wage. And just all the stuff that a, that a, that a middle-aged woman has to do when her means of support is ripped out from underneath her. And on paper, it looked awful. And you know what my sponsor told me? Don't look. <laughs> oh. oh, don't look. She said, live in today. Live in the moment. And I am here to tell you that those two years when he was gone and I couldn't blame him and it was not his fault that he, you know, he was, that was my litany. He was my hook. I hung, even though in Alcoholics Anonymous, I said I didn't. Deep down inside, and what happened to me, there's a pamphlet called Compliance Versus Acceptance. I still had, and I wish I would have documented it well into my sobriety, that lurking notion that I would drink. Lurking notion that if things got too bad, I would drink. The progress, the wonderful progress that Alcoholics Anonymous made with me was the fact that drinking was no longer an option, but killing, it would have been replaced by killing myself. Now, that's progress. I know that doesn't sound like progress, but it was progress because alcohol now really had been taken out of my life. So I just didn't look. You know, I went about living one day at a time and trying to focus on the character defects that had gotten me so deeply into this mess. And Alcoholics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous surrounded me. That's all I can say. They surrounded me. One day I was going to work. I had this little job, and I'm going to work. And my husband and I had been separated for two years and hadn't seen him or heard from him. And I'm going to work, and a woman hit me broadside. And uh, I hit a man on a bicycle. And I scared me to death. I'll never forget the look of his face on the hood of my car. And I finally got the car stopped. And I hate people who tell stories that don't tie up loose ends. I did not kill him. But I had injured him. And I was in a bad part of town. And the people in the town were going to pull me out of the car and kill me. And um, they, a lady stuck her head in. Here is this, these angels, these living angels. And she said, is there anybody you want me to call? And I said, yeah, I want you to call this man because the car was still in his name. 
and he picked me up at the police station. I didn't have a clue if he was in town, out of town, whatever. He picked me up at the police station, and he took me home. And we sat in our home and began to converse like people who had a history. And the thing that went through my mind when all this was going on was, my, my, how he's changed. (laughs) He hadn't changed at all. Not one bit. But Alcoholics Anonymous had begun to do its work. The working of the steps. That's what this is all about. The surrender to the steps. You know, how did I, how did I walk from compliance to acceptance? I didn't have to drink, thank God. But I now accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic, that I was a member for life. I know we do this one day at a time, but I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for life. You know, it was explained to me that for a person to be successful, there have to be three areas that are fulfilled. Work, play, and a mission. I had hunted for a mission my whole life. And my mission today is Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Bob and I get back together, and I would like to report that um, the book is also very specific about what it says about old relationships. It says it has to be on a new footing since the former one didn't work. And we and I are both very careful that we don't go to that awful place where that we destroyed each other. We really did that awful, awful place. Bob came home, and he said, would you like to move to South Texas? And I Seven years sober, and I thought, oh, Lord, are there any alcoholics in the state of Texas? <laughs> Is there any AA in the state of Texas? And I came to Corpus and just fell in love with it. Just, oh, Alcoholics Anonymous in Texas, for those of you, if you ever get a chance, please come to see us. We are just, you know, we really do. It's a wonderful Alcoholics Anonymous. And I set up uh, housekeeping in Alcoholics Anonymous in Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, began to work on the rest of my amends. And I told you I hadn't made amends to him, and it was like, "Uh uh-oh, somebody's going to ask me. And one day, and this was very unlike, uh, we were in Florida, all things, and I thought, it's time. You know how we go back to timing. And I had done my done my reading, and I had done my praying, and he was just waking up. And with these amend steps, and my life has, my sobriety has been a lot about amends. And I was one of these women that walked around on the face of this earth saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was given specific directions that you don't say you're sorry anymore. And then I would say, well, <clears throat> you're right. And she'd say, no, you're wrong. And I would like to tell you, when I first began to say that I was wrong, that it flowed easily. It didn't. Bob talked about that ego having to be ground to dust. It is the most resilient thing on the face of this earth is the ego that the alcoholic has. It it will resurface like you won't believe. And when I say I'm wrong... I can feel it in here. There is a battle. There is a war that goes on inside of here when I say I'm wrong. So I went in, and I had done my reading, and we sat down. I sat down on the edge of the bed, and I took his hand, and he's going bald on the top of his head. And I'm rubbing the top of his head and touching him the way people that have been married a long time touch each other. And I said to him, Bob, there's something I need to say to you that is out of context with our life today. 
And I remember thinking, AA better be right on this one. Because <laughs> I had done it with my sister-in-law, and she was the one who brought up what I said in 1962 and what I had done in 1964 and on and on and on. And I kept thinking, once I open this door with him, I am never going to hear the end of it. And I had, I, I, what I did, I had lost my faith. I lost my faith that this process works and that whatever happens, it's going to be, no, it may go to hell. I will be okay with whatever is going on. So I said, I need to say to you that I was wrong, and I ask your forgiveness, not if I hurt you, but when I hurt you. And then I waited for his answer. And his answer was, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. With my kids, see, I told you I did all these things for them, but I saw with my daughter what I had done to her. When I made my amends to her, she by this time had been married, and she had a small child. And this little child, it was a pastoral scene. She was sitting on the grass, and the baby was kind of crawling all over her. And I said to her, Christine, there's something I need to say to you. I was about two years sober. And for a fleeting moment, Frank talked about those computer eyes of our children. I knew how I had hurt that young woman. Because the look on her eyes was what she going to say or do now. With my son, it was the same way. I was given specific instructions on these men's. I was given instructions that I could take a piece of paper and write this sentence. I am involved in a program of recovery that makes it imperative for me to admit to you my failure as fill in the blank. Wife. Mother. Friend, sister, didn't make any difference. And then I was to ask for their forgiveness. Um, Bob came home um, in 1989, and he said, Marianne, would you like to move one more time? <laughs> I don't want to move again. And he said, well, this place is kind of interesting. He said, it's uh, Africa. <laughs> and I moved to Zambia, Africa in 1989, and I lived there for over two years. And I'm here to tell you that living in that country probably was the second greatest thing that has ever happened to me, sobering up being the first. I got off the airplane, at the, and Zambia is not, a, it's not South Africa at all. It's a very dangerous country. It's a very third world country. And I got off the airplane in Lusaka, Zambia, and looked out at the African bush, and I remember thinking, by God, Marianne, you've done it now. Um, <laughs> And what went through my mind, and this is with all the honesty that I can talk to you people, is that is God going to strike me drunk because I cannot get to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous at every turn? And the answer to that was no. Not the God that I found in AA. He won't do that. But there was a real reason for me to do that. <clears throat> I was 11 years sober, and I had been talking Alcoholics Anonymous. You know how we talk AA, talk AA, talk AA? Well, how do I know if I've made any progress unless I have some kind of a test? Well, this became my test. And what I learned to do was to go inward. The, you know, I lived where there was real fear and real danger. I do not come from the school of Alcoholics Anonymous who says that if you work these steps perfectly, all the fear will leave. It doesn't. The, as Bill sees, it talks about there is some real fear that we have. To, and the term that Bill uses is we deal constructively with the fear that's left. And so I'm in Zambia, Africa, and I, I have walls and I have 
coiled barbed wire and we have day guards and night guards and there's there's bars on the windows and inside and outside and we have jail doors that we close off the bedroom with and and there's real reason to fear and on saturday night i would hear the african drums and i would that that probably scared me more than anything and i would get down on me and you know what i would do is what you people taught me to do you know what my prayer was God, help me. God, help me. I learned to do a whole lot of things over there, except that I didn't learn to do them. They were within me. I made my own bread, and I ground my own meat, and I learned to take a bath out of a bucket, and uh, learned to half-cook things, and the electricity would go off, and there would be no water, and uh, I had my own garden. Um, I got to two meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in two years. It was five hours away. They wouldn't let me drive, and besides, they drove on the wrong side of the road, and uh, I got to two meetings, and they were pretty much like meetings here, and one day the phone worked, and I got a phone call from the from this woman in Lusaka, Zambia, and she said, I have a 12-step call for you to make. I went in Zambia, and she said, yes, there were no other Americans, and I remember thinking, well, maybe it's somebody from England or Scotland or, you know, somewhere else, and she said, no, it's a Zambian, and it's a man, and I said, oh, my sponsor says I can't 12-step a man, and she said, oh, yes, you can, and oh, yes, you will, and this man came to my door, and he brought his brother, and his name was Costa Canuga. And he was a member of the Bimba tribe, and he had a very heavy, heavy accent. Even though he spoke English, he was a very heavy accent. And he came inside, and the only thing he'd ever had to drink was Chibuku beer, and he worked in the copper mines. And he talked about drinking Chibuku beer and getting in trouble working in the copper mines. And I'm talking about drinking martinis in the Skirvin Hotel and getting into trouble. And we didn't connect. That I mean, I don't know how many of you have done a 12-step call where you don't connect. And that was one of these times we just did not connect. And uh, I, I didn't know what to do. And I had an extra uh, a big book, and I gave him a big book, and I had a, a pamphlet called A Member's Eye View of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I gave it to him, and he went on his way. And there was some consolation that, well, I had done the best I could. But I, I felt like I'd let AA down. And what happened was, three months later, Kosakanuga came knocking at the door, and he hadn't had a drink in three months. And I thought, this program, this program works. It doesn't make any difference if we're not the same color. It doesn't make any difference if we're not the same age. It doesn't make any difference if we don't speak the same language. It doesn't make any difference. Any of this stuff. Alcoholics talk to each other in the heart. And he talked to me about the promises. He said, Madam, will you tell me about the promises? And I'll tell you, I turned to page 83 and 84, and I gave him a 12-step call. You all would have been proud of. Uh, I didn't have anything to give him, and so I gave him my 10-year medallion that they had given me in Corpus Christi. And I didn't have a spare 12 and 12, but I had the 12 and 12 that Jean had given me in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I gave him my 12 and 12. Somewhere in Zambia, Africa is my 10-year medallion and my 12 and 12. And Bob came home shortly after that, and he said to me, uh, there's trouble. And he handed me a letter, and I looked at the letter, and I saw trouble, and I said, just a minute. And I went into the bathroom, and you know what I did. I got down on my knees, and I said, God, help me. 
And I went back in, and the Zambian government no longer wanted us there, and there was great reason to fear. How are we going to get home? How was you know how we're going to get our stuff home? You know how we women are with our stuff, and how we were going to get. I was going to get my stuff home, and and all these real fears. And I learned something very crucial that night. What I learned was this. Most alcoholic women, and some of you men fall into this category, are we women are extreme manipulators and we we are great controllers. Great controllers to the point of it almost kills us. And I learned that night why I desperately wanted to control primarily my husband's life and my kid's life. It was a revelation. And the revelation was this, that if I can control your pain, I can keep it at bay. I can keep it away from me. That night I let him sit across the table and I didn't fix. You know, Clara talked about not fixing. I didn't fix because I couldn't fix. And I let him talk and I let him cry. And I began to experience the worst emotional pain I have ever felt ever felt. You see, up to that point that every time emotional pain would get too close, you know what I would do? I'd dance. I'd dance. I'd somehow or another dance away from it. I would eat it away, or I would buy it away. I would spend it away. I'd talk it away. I'd sleep it away. Anything except to deal with the feelings that I felt at that moment and writing it out. And I had no choice. And he cried, and he talked, and it got worse and worse and worse. And I remember thinking, I am going to blow apart with this. I am going to blow apart with this pain. And he finally went to bed, and I'm standing at the kitchen sink, and I'm washing dishes. And what happened was the miracle. And the miracle was that the pain began to level off. It began to level off. It had stopped the crescendo. And after something levels off, the next thing that happens is it begins to dissipate. I remember standing at the kitchen sink thinking, yes, I can do this. I am not a coward. That there is something inside of me that is not weak. That Alcoholics Anonymous has made a strong woman in here. A real strong woman. There is a woman that has character in here. There is some substance in here. If you can look in my eyes, there is somebody home. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous did for me at 13 years sober. I had never ridden it out from beginning to end. You know, Bob talked about letting depression do its work. We have to let these feelings, we, I don't know what you have to do, I have to let these feelings do their work. I had, it's like a bully. You finally have to turn around and face the bully. My son ended up needing Alcoholics Anonymous, and I finally found somebody to talk to who had done it. You know, I hung on to this thing about, I can't help my kids, I'll help my, I'll help your kids if you'll help my kids. And I remember when Dan finally said, I need help, I ran to somebody who had a kid in the program, and I said, I'm, I've got this ambivalent feeling. I'm happy that he's coming in the program, but I, why do I feel so awful? And I said, I feel so guilty. 
and he said, you feel guilty because you are guilty. <laughs> and there was great comfort in that. That's all I can tell you. I had, I said, it was like, okay, I'm guilty. I don't have to run from it anymore. And it was like, come on, guilt. Come on in. You and Alcoholics Anonymous and I are going to have a go-round here, and we're going to get through this. So we finally make it back to Corpus, and what happened to me was this. I had made the amends to my parents. My parents were dead when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And Father Ben had said to me, it's important that you, that you, when you're out there running one morning, that you say, Mom or Dad, wherever you are, please forgive me that I was wrong when I hurt you. And he said, then you must say this, and I forgive you. And so I did that. It was incomplete. The only way I can say it was incomplete, and my hope for you today is if you hang around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, the circle comes around. And in 1990, I knew exactly what the end of the amends were going to be to my parents. Because my 90-year-old father-in-law came to Corpus Christi, and we put him in a nursing home. Now, I'm that nine-year-old girl again. Uh-uh. I'm that nine-year-old girl again, and I'm scared to death. Just scared to death. You know, it talks about as an alcoholic, we're quick starters and not only poor finishers, we're non-finishers. There is a principle involved in the tenth step. I don't know a lot of the principles, but I know this one, and it's perseverance. And Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me how to persevere. My father-in-law was in a nursing home for three years, and I visited this man every day for three years. And I promoted the good. I did what you people taught me to do. He would have terrible times. He was a teeny, tiny, frail man, and they would try to get him from a chair to a bed, and I'd be there, and he'd, he'd get to the bed, and I'd cover him up. And, and then you know what i do? i do what we do each other. I patted him, and I said, Dad, I'm here. I'm here. He uh, told the nurses at the nursing home that I was president of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I tried to dispel that rumor, but then I quit. Um, he, uh, he, his life was not ending very good, and I would make sure he'd eaten and that he'd had, you know, clean clothes and he'd had a shower and that he was warm. He was so tiny, he was always so frightened about being cold. And one day he was real cross and he he nipped at me, and and I remember thinking, I, you know, I don't know if I'd do any better. And I went back the next day, and he had remembered what he had said, and he said, Marianne, please forgive me. He said, you know, you're the best friend I have. When he died, my husband was able to say to me that uh, Marianne, this man, had two kids, two grandkids, five great-grandchildren, but he said, Marianne, you made the difference in his life. And you know what I was able to say to him? What wasn't me. It was Alcoholics Anonymous. The world truly is a better place now that we don't drink. There was another fear I had. There was a woman by the name of Victoria Diemick, and she had Alzheimer's disease, and she used to scare me to death. You know, I am that little eight-year-old girl again. And what happened is I'd go in the front door, and she'd grab at my clothes, and she'd get me down. She'd pull my earrings off, and she'd pull my hair, and, and you know, just she, she scared me. I'm, I'm frightened again. And what I would do is I'd go in the back door, and, and I realized after I'd done this for some months, that Alcoholics Anonymous would not be proud of me for this. And so what I did, I'd get out of the car, and I'd start toward the nursing home door, and I would say, God, grant me the serenity, literally, with every step. And what happened is Victoria and I became the greatest friends. 
every day I'd have to go in there and I'd have to introduce myself to her every day. But I let her mess with me is the only way I can explain it. She would mess with my hair and my clothes and mess with my earrings and just, I mean, one day I went in there and they put makeup on her. She really looked nice and said, Victoria, you just look great. And she looked at me with the clearest, most lucid eyes and she said, I wanted you to know that you're not the only beauty queen around here. <laughs> You know, I have these two kids, and I talk to, I have these two children, and I watched my kids, much like you all when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous. Which one, if I, if this is a family disease, odds are, I've gonna have one, and I had one, and it was my son, and, uh, oh, the pain that I went through, the thing of letting go, and, did I let go? It had to be ripped out of my hands is what had to happen. I had to get to that point of that everything I did didn't work. And I remember walking down an airport after I had put him on an airplane and just he smelled reeked of alcohol, tears just streaming down my, just streaming down my face saying, God, it is in your hands. I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I used to talk about uh, uh, surrender. You know what my version of surrender was? It's called retreating and regrouping. Uh, I knew how to do this. And the other thing that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is crucial that I tell this story, I know how to talk AA. And my my sobriety, you know how it talks about we trust God, clean house, and help others. So my house cleaning in the last three years has not been real good. It has been called a light dusting when I would do my house cleaning. And I had to talk Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm just tiptoeing through the tulips once again. Now, I should realize that that's a red flag for me. And in June of 1997, I'm in, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and we're there for my oldest granddaughter's graduation from high school. And uh, my husband's there, and, of course, family's there, and his in, his parents are there. And you know, you know how you know if your program's working? You'll find out when you're with family members. You will find out real fast areas that you've got to work on. And I'm stressed. And you know why I'm stressed? Because the control is out of my hands one more time. So I'm, I'm, I'm short. And Bob makes some smart remark and I whirled on him and I could tell by the look on his face that I was in big trouble. Big trouble. And what went through my mind was, oh, I'm gonna have to make amends. Let's just get this over with. That's what I remember thinking. And I finally got him aside, and I'm making amends, and I'm, you know, I know what to say. I know how to talk Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm saying, you know, please forgive me. I was wrong. And uh, I began to see, and I don't know how many of you have been with somebody long enough that you begin to read him. Well, I knew that I was weaseling my way back in, and that it was going to be, I was going to be forgiven, and that it was going to be okay. Well, then I decided I'd talk a little more, which should give you an inkling that I'm headed for trouble. So I, you know, I am really going into this about how I had hurt him and it wasn't his fault and please forgive me. And then I've been at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous where you hear people say, and what can I do to make it right? And I thought, you know, that's a nice line. I haven't used it recently. I think I'll use it. And so I said to him, and what can I do to make it right? And he looked at me and said, don't do it again. That wasn't supposed to be the answer. He hadn't read the script. 
the answer was supposed to be, she's a sober member of AA, she can just walk through people's lives and hurt them on a repeated basis, and then she asks for forgiveness, make amends, and then the world forgives her, and then she goes and does it again in three weeks, or three months, or six months. I am here to tell you, since June the 4th of 1997, I haven't done it again. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous. I have not done it again. My son found Alcoholics Anonymous, and in July of this last year, I was up there to give him his five-year medallion, and that is a blessing. But it was ripped from my hands. I have five grandchildren, and I was one of these women. I was terrified that my kids were going to get married, and, and they were going to keep these kids from me, because I was a drunken woman. And I'm here to say that none of these five kids have seen me ever take a drink. And they think I am the most wonderful grandmother that you would ever know. They go from 11 to age 19. And this summer, I, I had all five of them, you know, talks about playing the director. Well, sometimes it's kind of nice to play the director. And what I did is I made sure I had all five grandchildren at once. And we ended up in a motel room in Ocean City, Maryland. And you know how it talks about that some of us are in full flight from reality? Well, I was in full fright from reality because I thought I'm going to get these five kids in there, big boys and big girls, and they're going to sit around my ankles <laughs> quietly, and they are going to listen to me tell them loving little stories, sweet little vignettes about my life and about how much I love them. <laughs> After they quit fighting and farting, it was <laughs> horrible. <laughs> there were some of the sweetest moments I've ever had in my whole life. <laughs> They would they would lay on the bed. These boys are big boys, and they would they would hang on me. And there was an 18 year old boy and a 13 year old boy, and they would hang on me and kiss me. And they would let me get in the bed with them and let me rub their back. And then I had two of the little girls in the bed with me, and one girl has blonde hair, and she had her head on my lap, and I'm stroking her hair. See, I thought I was going to get sober and I was going to do these wonderful, grandiose, large, large things. I was going to save 90 million people and maybe be on television and maybe, you know, you know, be the first woman who could break her anonymity on TV and just stupid stuff. And I almost missed it. I almost missed it. It is the little things. It is the little unfolding of God's will in my life, and I almost missed it. One of the gifts that Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is I see God's hand in my life today. Not as much as I'm going to in years to come because I'm not finished. God is not finished with me yet. But I see God's hand in my life today. I uh, This boy that's 13 years old, he and here's where you women are going to have to practice your AA etiquette. This little boy, he's not a little boy, races cars. And he races, uh, I think I can get this right, he races 125s, which are multis. They are in the the uh, band, world of outlaw class cars. And they have a motorcycle engine, and they run 45 to 50 miles an hour. And he's been racing these cars since he's been nine years old. And I go up there, and I get to see this young man race. And I was there, and it sounds like fun until you see him going around the track, and then I get real, real scared. He said to me, Grandma, he said, I look up in the stands, and he said, I see you going like this. And I said, don't look up in the stands. You know, look at what you're doing. And um, 
so I was up there this last time, and and I'm praying, and I, you know, I get so wordy. I know God says, enough, I hear you. And I'm praying, I'm praying, and I'm lifting him up, and I'm, you know, all this stuff that I've learned. And and I'm thinking, you know, God, in, in your lofty heaven, and then they try to push his car up, and it won't run. And I said, well, God, let it run. And so he finally gets this car to run, and, and he's going around the track, and then I begin to pray for his safety, because all of a sudden, I am in reality, and I'm really frightened, and I'm praying for this kid's safety. And then the next thing I thought, I can't ask this. I just, I really don't think I can ask this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It's like those hundred crayons. Let him win, God. (laughs) Let him win. And he won. And he came up to me afterwards. He came up to me and he said, Grandma, come on down. You've got to get down in the infield with the car. He said, I want you to be down there and take a picture with me in the winner's circle. And I have it on the wall. I have a granddaughter, and I love them all. I love every single one of them with every single fiber of my body. And uh, this one is real special. Um, she loves Alcoholics Anonymous. She loves to listen to AA tapes, and she laughs at all the right places, which scares me to death. I have these kids. I have them every summer, and um, I have the oldest one who's 19, and what she would do is she would come, and she'd get off the airplane, and she says, Grandma, here's this pillowcase. I want you to sleep on this pillowcase for one month, and don't wash it, and when it's all over with, I take this pillowcase home, and I said, Jessica, what do you do with this pillowcase? And she said, when I miss you so badly that I can't stand it, she said, I smell the pillowcase. And she said, I smell you. There's a story, I believe it's in Keys to the Kingdom. It says, for a bottle and a hangover, I have keys to the kingdom. Why would I ever trade that for alcohol? This letter, uh, Rebecca dropped it into my purse this summer when she was there. And we go through this. Of, Rebecca's the 15-year-old. And we go through this of the pain, the pain of loving somebody. See, I was one of those who ran from that pain, too. I thought, I'm getting sober, and I'm not going to feel anything, period, good or bad. And Alcoholics Anonymous said, you stay around long enough, and you're going to feel it, sister, and you're going to feel it to the fullest. And I'm here to tell you that the pain of loving another human being far outweighs the void of not loving another human being. It is a privilege to endure that pain. But when these kids are here, I begin to watch them leave, and then I'm not going to have them for a while, and they start to cry, and I start to cry. And she dropped this in my purse when she got on the airplane, and she says, Mima, that's what she calls me. The last two weeks have been a blessing for me. I got to spend them with you, the highlight of my summer spending time with you. Ever since I can remember, I've looked up to you. To listen to what you've gone through in your life, I congratulate you. It must have been awful. But from my observances, it has made you a stronger person. You are the strongest person I know. When you're gone, I don't know what I'll do. I dread that day. I just wanted you to know that I love you very much. When people ask me what I want to be like when I grow up, I don't say a famous person, a president, or even a model. I tell them I want to be like my beautiful Mima when I grow older. Love, Rebecca. For those of you that are old-timers in this room, I have a simple request. Please keep coming back. We need you. 
I need you. You know what old timers are. You watch them. They are quietly heroic. They go through life and they do good things and they do bad things. But they do them sober. And they come and they share their experience with us. For those of you that are in those awful middle years, hang on. (laughs) Hang on. It may go to hell. It may go to hell. But you'll be better. Hang on. And for those of you that are new to sobriety, I'm going to tell you what was told to me. Hang on to your seat because you're in for the ride of your life. Thanks for my sobriety.